Hello, hello, and thank you so much. Welcome winners, hey winners. So this week we have the most amazing woman of all times in my personal opinion, Miss Lisa Price, who is the founder of Carol's Daughter. She has a background in forming the foundation of high performing products that continue to thrive and remain relevant. Please, please, please give a warm welcome with me to not only my friend, my mentor, my most amazing, amazing mentor, uh, Miss Lisa Price. I was unpacking boxes and getting uh, an apartment ready for my brother. Um, so hence the, the sweatsuit that you can see part of. Um, as uh, Psyche was saying, I need you to ask questions. I do not want to give, you know, she told me that I could have 20 minutes to tell my story. And I was just kind of like, they could find that stuff out. I don't want to talk for 20 minutes and take up all of the time when they can ask questions and really find out what they want to know. So I need you to be interactive with me in asking questions. Uh, very briefly, Carol's Daughter was started in 1993, which was 27 years ago. It started out as a hobby. I was making products in my kitchen, and my mother encouraged me to sell at a church flea market. And I sold at that flea market, and then people, you know, gave me flyers for other craft fairs and flea markets. And then there was people shopping in my apartment and just continued to grow from there. Um, when I started, there really wasn't much of a natural hair care industry. So I'm proud to say that I'm one of the pioneers that helped to build this industry. Um, I'm just thinking of pertinent things. Oh, a lot of times people say, where did you get the name Carol's daughter? That's who I am. My mother's name was Carol and I'm her daughter. And I named the company uh, um, after something that I was proud of. When I lost my mom in 2003, I was really, really grateful for having chosen that name because it was a way to honor her long before she passed away. You know, I started the company in 97. She didn't pass away until 2003. And then also going to work and seeing her name everywhere and seeing her face and living the life that I was living and building this company, it really helped me to mourn um, and it helped me to honor her every day. And it was a constant reminder that I wasn't alone, that she actually didn't leave me. She might be physically gone, but she's still there each and every day. And then I get to share how magical and wonderful my mother was whenever I have conversations like this and people ask me, oh, where did you get the name from? And oh, what was your mother like? Um, and I get to tell like great Carol stories. Um, I think those are the most important things. And then <laughs> if you don't know, 
I am currently a part of the L'Oreal family. I sold Carol's Daughter in 2014 to L'Oreal. I'm still employed there. I still run the brand there. November will be six years um, since I sold the company. And contrary to popular belief, uh, you can sell a Black-owned company to a company that isn't black owned and you can still have a voice and you can still be relevant and you can still run your brand and you can have a, a staff that is over 50% people of color, 90% women. Um, we, we are black founded and black led. We're just no longer black owned. And um, that is something that I am very proud of. And I do not believe in this cancel culture of canceling brands because they've sold to someone else that I'm not, I'm not in for that. We can discuss that if you'd like. So you have the most important, oh, I'm also a wife and a mother of three. And I also have a dog who I hope will behave himself and not start barking while we're doing this call. Um, so that's the important stuff. I need you to ask questions and um, don't, don't be shy and don't Hi, think, ask her that. Hi there. Hi, I'm Ron. And uh, one of the questions I have for you, did you start out with the mindset that you were going to scale and grow your business to sell it? Or uh, did you receive the offer that you could not uh, pass you know, pass over or refuse? How did that come about? I did not start the business with the thought that I would sell it because there was very little that I knew about business when I started. So when I started, I thought of it as a hobby at first. Then I thought of it as, well, maybe this is a way to earn additional income. Then it kind of became my only income. So then it was, well, I guess while I'm raising children and uh, you know they're small, I can work from home and still contribute to the household. And it just kept growing. And so then we get to a point where uh, there's investors in the company. And then after that, we had equity partners. So at the point when we took on equity partners, which was the very end of 2007, that's when I knew that in three to five years, we would sell because the equity partners needed to get their money back. Um, so that, that's when I knew that there would be a sale at some point. That sale took seven years instead of three to five years because of the recession. So there was a little bit of a lag, but eventually it did happen. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Carol. My name is Patrice. It's always a pleasure to see you. Um, I just finished listening to you and Caroline Clark on uh, on the clock. So I just feel like it's been a day of Lisa Price for me. And that's <laughs> always wonderful. Happy Sunday. Thank so you. I want to follow up um, a question with regard to exit strategy as well. How did you know L'Oreal was the right partner? Um, did a lot of people approach you? Did they just have the best deal or was there just specific synergies? Yes. So the, uh, yes to a few of those things. When we were ready to put ourselves up for sale, it was 2013. And we hired a bank 
And the way that the process works is that you sit down with the bank and you basically share your story. This is, this is what everything's looked like over the past three years. This is the type of partner that we're looking for. You get feedback from the bank. The bank informs you of deals that have taken place in your industry lately, what those deals look like, which companies are major players, which companies are overextended and they're not participating anymore. And then the bank gives you recommendations of companies that they think you should speak to. And then you would have your own recommendations of companies you'd like to speak to. And L'Oreal was always on my list along with one other company. And they were on my list because of the brands that I knew they had acquired and because of people that I knew worked for the company. When we started to have conversations and meetings with people, it was really clear to me that L'Oreal understood our customer the best. They had been in business with our customer for a very long time because L'Oreal also owns Dark and Lovely and Magic Shave, uh, Carefree Curl as well. So our consumer wasn't foreign to them. And with some of the other companies, that was the case. They were, they were kind of looking to get into that market with our consumer, but it wasn't something that was familiar to them. Um, and they were also open to not um, putting me into a box or putting the brand into a box. They liked the fact that the brand had different levels of price points and different points of distribution and that we were on television with HSN. They liked that it was different where some other places might feel like, well, we've never really done TV. I don't know how to do that. L'Oreal was comfortable and excited with that prospect. So there were meetings with probably eight or nine different companies and second meetings with maybe three. Um, but we knew from early on that L'Oreal was it. It just took a while for all of us to be on the same page at the same time. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a oh, question. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh. We Go need to raise our hand. <laughs> sure. Who's going first? Okay, I'll go. Um, so just a quick question in regards to the meetings that you have with your potential acquirers. What type of like FP&A or financial planning and analysis packages did you have to put together for these potential acquirers as far as your balance sheet, your P&L? Were you responsible for that? Did the bank that you hired put this together for you? What was required? The bank definitely puts the package together, but they put the package together with your team. So within my team, there was a very small circle of us that knew what was going on. So my GM, my CFO, um, and later along the line, we brought in the salesperson and the product development person, but they didn't come into the mix until we were about six weeks out from closing the deal. So before that, it was just three people. Um, and so they have to work with your team. The bank has to work with your team to get all of the information, but the bank 
knows how to put the story together so that when you go in with these things, you're telling the story that this particular company is going to want to hear. Um, they, the company also requests information from you. So once you've established that there's an interest, they will um, sign non-disclosure agreements to allow them to see more. And then they'll make a list of what financial documents they want to see, what sales projections they want to see. And then it's up to you and your team and your board to decide if it's too much or if it's okay for them to see all of that. And you, like, you let the banks know what you're going to release. Once that company makes an offer and they formally offer to purchase you, then you move into the period called due diligence where they really have access to pretty much whatever they want because now they have to find out, do you have lawsuits pending against you? Or were there problems with the products where you had recalls? Um, is, is there some uh, rent bill or something that you haven't paid? They, ha they have to know everything so that they don't get into it and, and then they're stuck. So kind of like if you're selling a house an appraiser comes in and inspect, not selling a house, buying a house, sorry. The appraiser comes in, the inspector comes in because you don't want to buy someplace and then have the roof cave in and all the plumbing has to get ripped out and you find out about it after the fact. Did that help? Absolutely. Making sure that you're, you know, have, be aware of all of your financials, including your liabilities, things of that nature to right. make your package. Get a cut of what's taking place, so they don't do these things for free. <laughs> so, so you you let them do the work that they need to do because they are going to get paid when all of it is over. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so um, hi, and we uh, thank you so very much. We don't usually get to say thank you. Um, prior to having you guys on, but we appreciate you and um, love the way, uh, the path that you've set for us. So with that in mind, I wanted to ask about your why and, and you know, it's been so long ago for you now and you were doing it before it was a fad, so to speak now. Now everybody wants to do it. So what was your why and um, how did you keep going being that like we have such situations and opportunities of what psyche has set up now you didn't necessarily have those things so how did you keep going was you started so small and humble how did all that happen for you well i guess my why was i wanted to share the things that I was making in my kitchen. So it started out as a hobby. It started out with me making moisturizers on my stove. And I've always had really dry skin and I saw my skin respond to the moisturizers. And then I would gift things to people. And I've also always been a person who loves fragrance. So I was making pretty things that made you smell good, but then they also made you feel good and look good because they worked on your skin. And when my mother said that I should sell it, and I said, really, do you think people would buy that, buy that stuff? And she said, yeah, your moisturizers are good. Your body butters are good. You should really sell them. So when 
I, I've always known my mother to be really honest. She wasn't the type of parent who always told you something nice, even if that really wasn't the case. So when my mother said, you should sell this, no, your moisturizers are really good. Are, am I still with you guys? Can you still hear me? Okay, I just want to make, because my screen went black for a second. I just want to make sure you could still hear me. So when my mother said, oh no, this stuff is good, I knew that really meant something because she didn't just compliment you just because. So I began to sell to people and I was really kind of just sharing this fun that I was having and this, this love that I had for the cocoa butter and the shea butter and the musk oil and the jojoba and you know, like this, this is so much fun, I wanna share it with you. And out of that, people began to ask me to make things. I can't find this for my hair. My scalp is too dry. My skin is always so dry. You know, I just want to relax in a tub. Do you have anything for dead skin? And I would hear all of these questions and then go and figure out how to make it. So my why was I'm helping people to feel good and to feel beautiful and to enjoy um their lives and that's still my why today um and then you asked how did i keep going when we didn't have resources like this and we didn't have digital resources like this but we did have interaction at different events and things like that so um it was smaller it was a bit more difficult but people talking to you customers talking to you other women talking to you that keeps you going and my family absolutely always kept me going they always encouraged me to keep doing what i was doing thank you i have a question oh hello Okay. Yes. Okay. I'll go. Um, Lisa, this is Adrian. Thank you so much for taking the time out on a Sunday to actually um, chat with us. Um, my question is this, as far as marketing goes, what advice um, or what type of marketing things did you do when you first started your business? And then also what advice would you give someone that is just starting their business or that has been in business for four years, five years, and, and I'm talking about myself, I'm girlfriend, um, that is actually looking to um, advance and looking to expand their business, but they're not really um, familiar with the marketing aspects. They don't really have um, the funding to pay someone to do it behind the scenes. What type of advice would you give someone through trial and error or through some things that you have did when you first started your business? What type of business is your business? So my business is a um, printing business um, is one thing. And then also um, I sell products to other business owners to help them grow their business through like um, vinyl, through um, printers, through ink. I distribute things like that as well. Okay. Um... So marketing is something that I did not study. 
Um, I always tell my marketing team when we're having meetings, I always say to them, now I know I'm not a marketer, but um, because I don't know the technical aspects of marketing and you know like there's certain tests that we run and there's analytics that go into marketing and that's not my area of expertise for me marketing is getting the word out to people in the best way possible and making myself accessible to people when they have questions that they that they need to ask about the products and services that we offer so I would, if I were you, figure out the best way to do that. You know, you said printing. I don't know if you mean like printing promotional material, but if printing promotional material is one of the things you were talking about, we yes. know that. So, okay, we know that right now, so many businesses and individuals and schools and all kinds of establishments need you know, the, the PPE, the hand sanitizer, the gloves, the masks. Um, I get emails a lot for custom printed items. Um, some people do not want a company brand on a mask um, because they don't want their company linked with whether or not the mask is safe or not. Um, so that's a whole other <laughs> ball of wax. Um, but I know that there have been some companies that put together bags and boxes of supplies that people may need to distribute. So if someone's coming to an event, they can hand out a, a bag that has a mask, that has gloves, that has a portable hand sanitizer inside of it. So things like that are... Um, pretty like low hanging fruit to get the word out and to show companies what you have to offer. Um, I think the one of the most important things about marketing when you're not well known is where can I give something away? Um, where can I showcase what I do, but not spend a lot of money doing it? that is going to create buzz. So for me, being that we didn't have social media 27 years ago, whenever it was Christmas time, I would always take big baskets of small items to my son's school. And inside of the baskets would be small bottles of lotion, individual bags of bath salts, uh, foot lotion, very unisex type things and universal things that would go across age and ethnicity. Um, people would pick them up. They'd use it for themselves. They would say, oh my goodness, this is so great. Then they would end up shopping at the store after they got this gift um, during the holidays because they would come to get stocking stuffers or come to get a gift basket for someone. Um, I would always give products to hairstylists, still do that today. Uh, just ship something to a production, a film production going on in Canada um, last week. You know that someone will take a picture of it, they'll promote it. You just have to watch your budget and make sure you can afford to do that. But typically doing that type of thing is cheaper than paying someone else to do it for you. Hi, Lisa. I'm Candace Caldwell. I want to thank you so much for coming on with us today. We really, really appreciate it. I'm here with my mom. 
and she actually makes um, whoop shea butter and oils and things of that nature. Um, and I knew it was very important for her to get on today. And we have a question for you. Um, starting with a small team or as a sole proprietor um, and making your own products, how did you go about getting the products tested um, for their shelf life, for you know the preservatives and things that actually need to stay in the healthy products or the natural products to make sure that they would actually be able to have a sustaining shelf life inside of department stores and things of that nature um, well, at, at, with a small bud budget? Well, by the time the products were in department stores um, or big box stores, the company was much further along at that point. So the testing that needed to be done with the products was being done with the manufacturers. When I was making everything at home, I made things pretty much to order. There was very little inventory that sat on a shelf longer than two months because we just we didn't have the space um and i knew that it was better if it was made fresh and shipped out i didn't have the type of budget where i could house lots of inventory that would have been money sitting on the shelf not doing anything um mm -hmm. so i did very rudimentary testing initially like whenever i would make something that was um a new recipe I would put a bottle or a jar in a cold place, in a hot place, in a room temperature place, put it in sunlight, put it in the dark, and you see how it reacts and, and, and what happens. That was very rudimentary. Later, when the company got larger and we were working with manufacturers, they would put our products through compatibility testing and stability testing. Um, but in the early days, I learned how to do my own and I and I only learned from the mistakes, you know, um, like one <laughs> one Saturday, I was super excited to share a CMOS shampoo that I had made with the with a customer. And I hadn't done that, put it away for two weeks in this spot, that spot, etc. And it was the first time I was working with CMOS. And I'm raving about it to her, like, oh, it was so great. And I washed my hair with it, and my hair was so soft. And she's like, oh, I can't wait to smell it. Which bottle? And I pointed to the bottle. She took the bottle off the, off the shelf, and she has it like this, thank God, like pointing away from her. She unscrewed the cap, and the shampoo flew out across the room. So I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, wow. Never, never did that again. So... I would put things aside to see what would happen. So I had too much sea moss in the bottle. It was fermenting in the bottle. So as soon as air hit it, it just went. Um, and then when you have a packaging that gets a dent in it, that's when you know you have compatibility issues. Sometimes when you do, you're pouring something and it's hot and it's too hot, it'll compromise the plastic. Um, so you have to check your temperatures. And then some ingredients are just not compatible with certain types of plastic. So when you get larger, there's more formal compatibility that's done where they actually will take a jar and stick it in an oven and turn the heat up. And then you know what's gonna happen when the product is on a truck in August in Arizona. What's gonna happen? Yeah. Okay. And then, Thank and you so much. The smartest thing to do 
when you're smaller and you're doing it on your own, you disclose that in your information. You, you say such and such company, everything is made in small batches by hand. Uh, there may be irregularities between the batches in color and consistency because everything is all natural. Keep it out of direct sunlight. Um, if you're not going to use it right away, store it in the refrigerator because we don't use preservatives. When you tell people all of this information and give them guidelines on how to take care of the product, then no one can say, well, she never told me to do that. And she never told me that I couldn't use it four years later. Awesome. Thank you. You've been a while since I started, Carol. And so it's, it's a blessing today for me to actually see you have grown to the fullness that God has allowed it. So this is such a blessed opportunity. Such oh, a blessed opportunity. Congratulations. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. I have a question. Mm -hmm. My name is Avisayo Muhammad. Um, I am the maker. I am a braid stylist and also the maker of a braid uh, solution that I created called Love Potion. And what it does, it adds moisture uh, to your hair and also sheen and nourishment to your scalp as well as give the braids a brighten up look. So um, I've been doing it for a while, um, but I like, I, I love the answer that you gave about preserving the product. Um, but I like to talk about um, the evolution of your goal. And I did read on you prior to, I've used your product for years, so I'm very honored to talk to you today. Um, but when you, I read that you, you know, ultimately sold the product to L'Oreal and that it was one of your goals was to sell, you know, to a major company. And I love the evolution of how you uh, created stores, you expanded your product line, you know, maybe some of the things that I would strive to do, maybe not, but I think ultimately the similar goal is to sell to a major corporation. So could you speak a little bit more on the evolution and where that turning point came where, you actually met the goal, and that was to sell to a major corporation. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Um, thank you. When, when we took on equity partners, um, that was when I knew that ultimately we would have to sell to a strategic. Because when you take on an equity partner, it means that that financial institution is coming into your business with a lot of money and their intention is for you to grow and then they want to be a part of that sale and their hopes are that they may double or triple the value of the company so they get a bigger return on the investment so if they come to you and you're a two million dollar brand and they think that you can be a 25 million dollar brand they may invest five to ten million in you get you to that 25 sell you for 50 and instead of getting back the 10 million that they put in they may end up with 25 million that they put in um, so all the scenarios are different i just did it into simple numbers just to give you a perspective so I knew that once we took on equity partners, that that would be the ultimate goal because the only other way 
would be for money to fall out of the sky and for me to say, oh, here's all that money that you gave me. I'm good now. Bye. You know, and I didn't have money like that. That wasn't going to happen. So then the goal became, well, if ultimately I'm going to end up selling this to someone else, then let's make sure that as we're building this brand into this bigger thing, that we build it in a way that still speaks to our consumer the way that we want to, still tells the stories that we want to tell, um, and serves the community and, and makes people feel good. And during that period of time of building the company, I got to work with Mary J. Blige with launching her own fragrance. I got to work with her on her charitable foundation that helped to send kids to college. We launched on Home Shopping Network and ended up becoming the number three beauty brand on the network. We expanded into Macy's, we expanded into Sephora. Um, we were able to go to the Essence Music Festival every single summer. And every time we went there, there was always a charitable angle to our participation within the Essence Music Festival. And so to be able to grow and make money but still do good at the same time was really important to us. Um, and then eventually we were able to grow the company to a point where we could take ourselves out for sale because the story was making sense. Hi, I have a question as well. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, my name is Adaya, and I just wanted to know, I don't know if you mentioned it at the um, onset of the call, but just wondering, what were your initial steps in finding a manufacturer? I know you said you started off in the kitchen, but then, of course, as production comes in, you know, you got to meet the demand. So what were, what were your first initial steps on looking for a manufacturer? I started at first, like you said, in the kitchen. Then the kitchen got bigger because my apartment got bigger. Then the kitchen got bigger because I moved into a house and had a bigger kitchen. Then the kitchen got bigger because I was in a warehouse and I could hire more people and have some industrial equipment. But when I needed contract manufacturing, um, it was in 2004 and I brought someone onto the team to be the GM at that time. And she had a connection with a lab in New Jersey and another lab in Chicago. And those two labs became two of the first to ever produce our products. So I got to them through her and uh, they were, because they knew her and because she had brought them business before, they listened to our pitch um, because we weren't completely unknown to them. She had worked for another company that had done business with these manufacturers for 15 years or so. So they took the meeting. But there are independent contractors out there that do small batches. So you don't have to be, you know, at a 10,000 piece minimum to have conversations with companies like that, especially with, um, you know, there's a lot of influencers that come out with their own makeup lines, their own beauty lines. So there are manufacturers that recognize that that's what the market is looking like right now. And they do small batch manufacturing. 
Good afternoon, Lisa. My name is MJ. I am the uh, co-owner of Big Softies Cookies here in Chicago. And one question that I have um, is about scaling and knowing a dollar amount, I guess, if you will, of like how I'll know or how we'll know as business owners when it's time to scale up to that manufacturing place or look for investment or equity partners that you have a particular dollar amount in mind before you went out to look for partnerships? Your, your question is making me smile because it's reminding me of when I did the Oprah Winfrey show years ago. Um, one of the people on the show was Paula Dean. And, uh, you know, Paula Dean has, has, you know, gotten into trouble since then with some comments that she made um, that weren't necessarily politically correct. But at the time, um, people only knew Paula from QVC because she was selling cookbooks on QVC and she didn't have um, a restaurant yet or a television show. She had just signed the contract start producing the television show we did Oprah and so we did the Oprah show and then Oprah used to have this after show and during the after show somebody in the audience asked her a similar question they were like how did you know when it was time to get out of your house because she started a catering company at first and she was catering out of her house and she said do you want the real answer and they said, yes. And she said, when the law was about that close to me, that's the honest answer for real. It's not a magic number. It, yeah. it's, it's when you know that you are taking risks that you should not be taking. When you know that if, if like if you, if you sit and said to yourself, if something goes wrong with the batch that I made yesterday, can I backtrack? and figure out exactly what went wrong. And could I pull that back in the event there was a problem? Like, could you do a recall? And if those things are too hard to answer, mm -hmm. and you know, because Paula said that at the time that she realized I have to stop doing this in my house, she had coolers in her backyard she was sending her sons to the store to buy bags of ice to keep things cold because she couldn't fit it inside the house. She loved when winter lasted too long because she could keep stuff outside. You know, like when it gets like that, you got to start getting a handle on things and, and you begin to discover uh, that you're spending too much time trying to keep control over things. Mm -hmm. I, I remember spending too much time putting things away like a delivery would come in and it would take four hours to get it like, okay, the bottles are there, the caps are over there, this is over, you know, and you could have been making product. Like, why is it taking four hours to unload an order? Because it's like Tetris when you're putting everything away. Um, no, Jenga, more like Jenga. <laughs> so those moments are moments that you know, okay, I need a storage space. Maybe I need to move this. Maybe I need to get an accountant to handle all of this paperwork because if I wasn't doing paperwork for six hours, I could have made $7,000 worth of product, but I was doing paperwork. That, that, that's how you wrestle with those. It's not really a dollar amount. It's your, it's your individual business and what your business needs. And if you can pay somebody to streamline something, it frees you up to make more money because ultimately you're going to make more money than anybody else. 
Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Lisa. You're hi, welcome. Lisa. Yeah, hi, hi, Lisa. My name is Kenitra Lachey, and I'm actually a hairstylist. And I just came out with my own um, product line. It's not necessarily like products, but it's innovative um, tools to help women help preserve their hair. And um, my pillow is called a Satin Beauty Saver Pillow. And my question is, what? when do you know, because I know we're talking about investors or you were talking about equity investors. When do you know uh, or what do you look for when you're finding like that right person to help invest in your business? Cause like everything I've been doing on my own, but I have been having um, people kind of like, well, if you do this or, you know, like asking me about being an investor, but I don't really know what to look for when searching for the right people to help out. The first thing that you don't want to, well, <laughs> it, it's the it's what you want to look for and also what you don't want to look for at the same time you want them to have money because a lot of people have words and they actually have to have cash to back up the words but you don't just want them because they have money because the money needs to be smart it can't just be a person that wants to invest but they don't know your field and and if you're if you're if you were a person who came from a background of manufacturing tools for hair and that's what you used to do for a living and now you're on your own you have a lot of knowledge about that industry already so you might not need someone that knows that space but if you kind of stumbled across it if you said you know here's a comb and here's a brush, I'm gonna marry them to one tool, or here's a rat tail comb and here's a wide tooth comb and I'm gonna put them together and you're just gonna have one and one is at, the rat tail is at one end and the wide tooth is at the other end, what, whatever that is, and you dreamt something up, but this isn't your space. This isn't, you know, you're, you're a nurse by day and you do this on the weekends, then you need somebody that's in that space to help you to scale up. So that's how you start to know what you're looking for. Um, and you want to work with someone that you like. You don't have to be best friends. You don't have to be like family. They don't have to go to your church or anything. Is, are you? Yes, I'm here. Okay. I'm here. Um, but you have to be able to talk to them and communicate and understand what they're saying back to you when they come back to you. You want to think of it as um, a relationship. You got to have something in common. Um, you meet each other's families, you know, like you meet other people in their company. You talk to other people that have done business with them. They meet other people in your company. And then before you sign anything or you take anything from somebody, you talk to your lawyer and your accountant to make sure that you have the appropriate contract because things always start out great in the beginning and what lawyers do is lawyers will think about all the bad stuff that can go wrong so like if you think about somebody that's in a relationship and they're getting married and th there's a prenup the reason that there's a prenup is because the lawyers will think about all of the stuff that could go wrong that you're not thinking about because you're in love. You're getting married. This person is great. I'm so happy. You're not thinking about what happens when somebody cheats or when somebody empties out the bank account or whatever. The lawyers will think about those things. Um, 
So don't sign anything and don't make agreements until you have a lawyer. But the first thing is just making sure that the person is not all words, that they have something to back it up, that they know your business and you can have a conversation with them and they listen to you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Last, last question. Um, growing a team, growing a team, what are some pitfalls and recommendations that you have in terms of hiring, growing a team? Um, one is that your team will change and that's okay. I, I remember when I used to think everybody is supposed to stay and nobody's ever supposed to leave because we're like family and I don't ever want to let anybody go. And then I had to learn that when you're at different levels of your business, some people move with you to that next level and some people don't because they may have come to you because things were a certain way and now they've shifted and it's not really what they want anymore. And you have to allow for those changes to take place. And then when you have, um, when you're a business person and an entrepreneur, you may attract a certain type of person to come and work with you. And what I've discovered is I've had lots of other entrepreneurs come and work for me and they may work for me for a year or five years or six years. And in being in that environment, they begin to realize I can do the thing that I wanted to do. And I've had people go on to become makeup artists, to become videographers, um, directors, to become stylists, um, to start concierge businesses. So now I, when I bring people into the team, now I don't mourn when someone leaves um, because yeah. I, this is good. part of the process. But in recruiting, you want to recruit people that work in your environment, understand what it is that you're doing, have respect for what you're doing, um, but don't try to recruit friends and don't, not saying you can't hire a friend, but sometimes people feel like they have to be best friends before they can hire someone, um, especially when you're an entrepreneur, because a lot of times you're bringing someone into an intimate space. Maybe there's only four of you. Maybe you're working out of your garage. Um, maybe there's three people in one room, so everybody has to get along. Uh, that those are, are real things, but then we kind of fall into the habit of we're all friends and we're hanging out. And there are times when you have to remind people, no, I'm, I'm the boss and I pay you and I write the checks. So you do what I say <laughs> and that, and, and they have to be good with that. So you have to be good with asserting it and they have to remember, oh yeah, she is my boss. It's very, very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Lisa. I have a Hi. question for you. So I just started a brand in uh, March. I had to pivot. I was a service-based um, business, and I had always planned on transitioning to being product-based, but COVID made me move a little bit faster. Um, my brand is called Brie on Brows, and I sell um, brow care products. My most popular product helps people to grow their eyebrows back. And in just a few months, like this past month, I was featured at Oprah Magazine. Um, 
So I'm growing really quickly, but I'm not quite at the point where I could take on investors because I don't know what my company is worth. Um, but I want to expand the brand as much as I can before I get to that point. So what are some tips for scaling um, with minimal resources, essentially? There's so much I want to do, but cash flow prohibits me to, from really putting my foot on the what, gas. What is that you think you need? Like, um, because scaling can mean so many different things. So is it that you need more inventory? Um, do you need people? Do you need a facility? Wh which one is it? Um, more inventory and I need to expand my, my offerings to kind of build up my lifetime value of my customers. Um, so my oil, they only need maybe three times a month, but I want to introduce like a brow pencil, things that they would have to buy more frequently. So, I'm so trying you to need cash to buy the inventory but you have the audience so once you have the inventory you could sell it to them yeah it's a small audience but they are responsive so to me that's not an investor you don't need an investor yet you just need some debt you need um credit card debt um maybe an american express card that you use carefully, some, some kind of managed debt with not crazy interest so that you can order what you need and then you sell it and then you pay your bill and then you order some more and then you sell it. I, I would do carefully managed debt. Okay, thank you. Have you ever, Carol, this is April. Um, have you ever, like when you were starting off, were you afraid of being successful? Like, did that scare you? Did you, like, sometimes I pull back because I'm a little afraid of what my business can be. It scares me a little bit. And I probably don't put myself out there as much okay. as I should. That is but that's not being afraid of being successful that's afraid of being successful and then failing and losing it um and that might be afraid of what are people going to say if this happens and if that happens and how do i manage it um so those those and those are fears that i understand where they come from because i've been there but when you push past them, you start to realize that th that's all that they are is a fear. They're not really a reality. Um, and then the other thing that, that I've learned in being a Black woman in business, we have to remind ourselves that we second guess ourselves a lot because Society, and especially if you're a certain age. So I think people over 40 get this. People who are younger, it might be a little bit different, but people over 40 get it. We were not raised by parents and grandparents and teachers and churches to um, believe in ourselves in the same way. Not that our parents don't, didn't tell us that we could be amazing things. They did. But there's so much 
where we go, oh, no, I don't know. Well, you know what? No, I don't want to go too fast. Let me just do this. Let me just do that. And it's okay, it, it's okay for us to be comfortable with that. And it's okay with us to, to do less and not do more. And, and we can talk ourselves into dimming our light and, and not pushing um, because we feel like there's so much to lose, you know? And our white counterparts don't learn that. They learn to go for it. And, and grab it and try and fail and then get back up and do it again because you learn from the failure. So don't be afraid if, if what, what you, no, that's not right. Let me not say don't be afraid. Yes, you're gonna be afraid, but you don't have to act on it. So try to drill down on exactly what it is that you're afraid of. And then if you can mitigate that circumstance, it helps to, make make it easier for you to move forward um like if if just as an example if you were looking to purchase a house and you find the house that you're interested in and you and you like the neighborhood and you like the house but you're really nervous because it's an old house. And what if I buy the house and then there's tons of repairs? Or what if there's something wrong and I don't know about it? I don't have enough money to buy the house and do a whole lot of repairs, right? So let's say that's your fear. You don't wanna not buy the house, right? You don't wanna just say, oh, forget it, I'm not gonna do it. You can hire someone and say, hey, look, I'm looking at this house it's a pretty good price, but I'm nervous that the wiring is messed up or I'm nervous that the roof is bad or the foundation. And you might have to pay that person a couple thousand dollars to go do an inspection. But then they'll come back to you and they'll say, I found this, I found this, I found this. And then you can look at it and say, okay, that's gonna cost too much money for me to repair. I, I'm not doing this, I can't do this. And then you're walking away from the house not because you're afraid, but because you've analyzed the problem and you know you can't afford it. So you just go on and look for the next house. But if you don't drill down and look at the fear and break it down, then you're just operating on fear. And you don't want to operate on fear. You want to operate on faith. And you want to have knowledge to go with your faith. Don't let the fear win. It's okay that it's there but it's there for you to learn and to dig deeper. Ooh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I feel oh like goodness. saying amen after that. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> that was phenomenal. I missed, it was. I missed wow. church today, so that was a word. That was, that a was word. very powerful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We uh, we're just so honored to have had you. That was such a phenomenal, phenomenal time of just listening and just getting so much great information. 